we have not yet heard about Ezra in today's readings. But hold on, we turn our attention to him and to what God did in him and through him. Be seated, please. Ezra, his place in history, I'm not going to read the whole book to you this morning, but I am going to highlight what happened, his story, if you will. And a way we can do that is with three R's. And the first R is really straightforward, and that is return. Return. It's true not only for Ezra, but for the people of God long ago. So let me back up a little bit and give you a head start, a running start into his story. Solomon's sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, well, they didn't get along very well. As a matter of fact, they were warring, and they tried to find their place as the successor of Father Solomon, but it never worked out. And each had a following, and what resulted was a split in the promised land of Israel, north and south. That sound a little bit familiar about a division? Well, the north and the south were not friendly one to another throughout history. And after that big split, something happened down the road, a number of years. The northern part, called Israel many times in the scripture, was wiped out. The Assyrians came in from the east and totally devastated them. And it wasn't that many years longer, as you look at the big picture timeline of history, that the south was invaded by the Babylonians. And it was decimated except for a handful of people. Those Jews who remained, and there weren't that many, went east to Babylon as exiles there to live. New place, new country, new people, new culture, new everything. And then, about 70 years later, history took another turn. And it took a turn by a king named Cyrus, not a Jew, not a believer in the true God, but a godless person, one who had turned away from God. And it was this that happened. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Remember, a false god he turns with this message. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Quite a statement, quite a movement that Cyrus made on behalf of God and for his people. And so, about those who remained in the exile there in Babylon, about 42,000 men left, with over 3,500 servants, men and women, and they returned home in a couple of waves of history. 
A couple of leaders are indicated in there. Events are recorded in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra. Those two, over time, were in charge of the project of returning home and building the altar of God and rebuilding the temple of God together. The very center of who they were, the center of faith, the portion where God lived. They came and they began their work. And this is what was said about Ezra and his part. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. Listen, remember, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God, was with him. Ezra had a job, and King Cyrus provided the resources magnanimously, the silver, the gold, and all sorts of gifts so that that temple and the altar of God would be reestablished. And then came the second phase. Return, but then rebuild. Rebuild according to Cyrus's permission and according to the will of God. Return, rebuild. You can imagine. Can't, you can imagine, at least in part, what a huge job that was. 42,000 plus men overseeing all of that, directing all of that, and seeing that all of it took place. But that wasn't everything. Return, rebuild, but then reform. Reshape not only the temple and its altar, but to reform the people. And you know, that's not easy. The task of building, but also of helping people to return to the Lord their God fully. And there's threats that happen all the time, and we know that, whatever is about to happen. Threats came from the outside, and threats came from the inside. The neighbors who lived in the vicinity of Jerusalem and beyond didn't like the fact that the Jews had returned. It may have been a number of years later, some 70 years, but they appealed to their king and said, do you remember these people? They were a problem. They made difficult lives for all of us. And you don't want them to return. You don't want them to rebuild. And they tried to persuade the king, and they gave the Jewish people a very hard time in their project. But there was a problem from within as well. And that's where reforming was needed. While the Jews had been in a foreign land, in Babylon, in exile. You can understand how they absorbed the culture, how they became more and more like the people in whose land they lived. I mean, that, that happens anywhere. We begin to lean towards, absorb, and even take in the kinds of things that are around us. And more than that, these Jews intermarried with the non-believers in the true God. And you know what happened with that? It's the very same thing happened when the Jews invaded what God had promised as their land. He said, the land is yours, but don't intermarry with those who 
give the knee to false gods. Because what's going to happen is your loyalty is going to be separated, it'll be divided, and you won't worship me and honor me and follow me like I've said to do. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And this then is what Ezra narrates in his book. And there's two things here, both for Ezra and for us. With all this before him, Ezra needed perseverance. And Ezra exercised perseverance. He saw the challenge, and I, I quickly summarized it, but it was a big challenge and a long challenge. Not done in a day, challenging many people, his own. Can you imagine? I can't quite. Well, there's perseverance for us that we are called to as people of faith, as people whose attention is on the one true God. It's an admirable trait, perseverance is. It is so long as it is toward a godly goal, directed by our Lord. And you know, I thought about this long time. There is nothing so sad as when one believes in God and then doesn't persevere and falls away from the faith. To start something as important as the faith and not persevere, that's a sad thing. And think about this. Becoming a Christian is really a pretty easy thing. I mean, God touches lives. And who qualifies? Sinners. Is that easy or not? Of course, we are all sinners. And to make it easy still, what God does to bring us to himself is he gives us grace. We don't have to do anything. He loves us. Not because of us, but because he is good. And even through the power of the Holy Spirit, he enables us to hear, to hang on to that good news, and he generates faith. We are called then to do the same. We are called to hear God's word, to respond to his call, to embrace it. And then, then it becomes difficult. While it may be easy, at least relatively speaking, to become a Christian following Jesus, that's not so easy. It is unseating ourselves and moving away from the natural instincts that we have where life is all about us, where it's what I want to do, maybe what others want me to do. And the final authority of putting God first at the center of our lives, not so easy. And the struggle goes on. Being self-centered is one thing, but being other-centered as God leads us, is quite another. Centered in him makes us, uh, demands of us, leads us to be centered in other people and their lives. To love as God loved us. Not because somebody else is good and deserving, but because God loved us. Because that's what love does. God is love. Unmerited, undeserved, all the rest. Listening to Jesus that's easy. To take it into our hearts and minds, yes. But then to go, 
to live, to follow Jesus, that's quite a difficult thing, not following our natural instincts. And here we've got something powerful. What we have is the model of Jesus. We have a unique example in the life of Christ our Lord. Think about this. Think of his life. Think of how he encountered it. It wasn't all about himself. He was about other people, other-centered. You read the New Testament closely, and beyond that, you see that his life wasn't easy. You might think it would be easy being other-centered, but it wasn't. He ran into difficulties again and again, and he lived a not easy life with many obstacles. And irony of ironies, where he got the opposition was from people who believed in God, from the religious leaders in particular. Somewhat surprisingly, those leaders became at odds with Jesus, his way of looking at things, his way of doing things. But here's the inspiration. Jesus persevered in his calling. He listened to God. He exhibited God's love. He was God's love in the flesh, even to the point of being persecuted, spoken evil of, and even to the cross where he died a criminal's death, undeserved, but part of God's plan. And he persevered in God's plan despite the great price he had to pay. And here's the thing, we can hear about him and, and we can say, isn't that great? And it is a model, but more than a model, it is an empowerment for us. Knowing Jesus in faith gives us the ability to live the life of faith and to be empowered and persevere to live like Jesus. Some of you may remember a number of years ago, WWJD. Remember that? Some of you are too young, but WWJD uh, filled the air. Uh, it was there on posters. It was there on bracelets. What would Jesus do? And to tell you the truth, it got a lot of bad press, even from within the Christian church. That's too shallow. Well, you know what it boils down to is exactly what would Jesus do? Both as our model, but also as our empowerment to live in him and for him to live in and through us. This changes everything. Otherwise, we can simply stand in awe of a great man, even claims to be God-man, and just have our hearts warmed and then move on. But we're changed by that. We become unwavering. We become perseverant in our faith, all because of Jesus Christ, our faith in action. And, and obviously the key then is to be, what shall we be resolute about? I've already begun to say that, but it's our faith. It is our following, holding on to Jesus. Not just holding on to him, but sharing him. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, one of those great I am statements of Jesus we've looked at. To be resolute, to be persevering in doing what is right, what is God pleasing, and, and not give in to the pressures around us and even within us. 
What's important is not to resolve and persevere, to be something different by our own thoughts, by those thoughts of those around us. It's important. It is important to rebuild, not a temple of God, but it is important to reform that third big R, to reform. It isn't just people of the past that needed that. It isn't just people beyond us, but it's we too are called, another R word, to repentance. That's how we are reformed, reshaped by the goodness of God. And you know, that's a spiritual rebuild. That's a spiritual returning to God, not just once, but again and again and again. The issue is not to have divided loyalties, not to give in to ourselves or to others. This is not easy. There's a lot of great pressure around us from people to culture, even more. If you sit down and think about it, even more from the culture around us that would try to capture us. The Jews were captured, but then they were captured by their surroundings, people and circumstances. And they either ignored God's commands or they gave in to the culture. Do you remember? Do you remember it wasn't only Ezra, but Ezra, like John the Baptist, called people to repentance. He called them, he called them to repent. And it was the same with John the Baptist. It was the same with Jesus. And it's the same with us. We're able, we're called to call others, even ourselves, to repentance. That's part of what the body of Christ is all about. If we see ourselves together or individually turning away from God, we're called to repent, but we are enabled to call others to repent as well. The good news for Ezra and his people is they responded when Ezra called them to turn back to the Lord. We too. We're called not just to say the words in a prayer that we offer from time to time, not just the words as we gather for worship and make a corporate confession of sins, thinking, well, that's just for somebody else. It's unseating ourselves again and again, not as the final authority, but putting God in charge, which he is. It's a call to leave self-centered living and become again and again other-centered. Loving God with an outgoing love, outgoing to others as well as to him, non-deserved. Listen to Jesus, not following our natural instincts. Do you remember what Paul wrote? He wrote about running the race, running the race to get the prize. The ultimate prize is heaven, but running the race takes perseverance. We have that right before us. And here's another thing, another thing, to stay connected. If we're going to do all of that, we need, we are able to stay connected to our Lord Jesus. That's what we heard about in today's gospel reading. Remain connected to me, Jesus said. And that's what we're called together to do. I remember 
early on, the very first parish that I served, a young couple came to me to be married. And we were going through the preliminaries after greeting and speaking a bit, started writing down names and addresses, and all of a sudden I stopped because the addresses were the same. And I laid down my pen and I said, you know what? This is correct, right? I've got to think about this. They were living together. And no, longer, no sooner than I said that, they stood up and they walked out. They left. Hadn't even called to repentance. But apparently God was working in them. They left. But maybe he wasn't working in them altogether because they went to another pastor in the small community and he agreed to marry them. By the way, when I went to him later, we got it all figured out. But so often when we're called to repent, we walk away. We walk away. And even when I went with an elder to the parents, guess who became the villain? We who were called to repentance, who called them to repentance. We're here to stay connected to Jesus. And with that, as the first Corinthians were, was written by St. Paul, there was a man who was living with his mother, his stepmother, no doubt. And he was called to repentance. And he was said not to be part of the body of Christ because of that sin. But we read in 2 Corinthians that that call to repentance worked. And he was brought back into the fellowship of God's people. With all of this, God encourages us. Listen, we, we heard some of that in the first two readings today. Psalm 40 gave the psalmist David a firm place to stand. Firm place, like that anthem we heard. And in the midst of a confession after his tryst with Bathsheba, David prayed, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, stand firm in faith. And he wrote it to the Ephesians and the Philippians as well. Stand firm in the Lord. Not just a directive, but an encouragement. And it was to the writer to the Hebrews that picked up on that thought about running a race. He said, run the race, run with perseverance in an unwavering kind of way. Our encouragement of one another as much as the encouragement of God. That's what we're called. That's what we're able to do for each other is to encourage each other to live for God to live beyond ourselves, and to persevere in that faith. You know what Cain said way back about Abel. He said, you know, am I my brother's keeper? All of which assumed, no, I'm not my brother's keeper. But you and me, in the body of Christ, we are our brother and our sisters. We are our keepers. So, so Ezra has gone down in history. He returned along with God's people from exile. They rebuilt the altar in the temple of God, and they were reformed. Reformed through repentance. That's how Ezra is remembered. But what about you? What about me? What about all of us? What is our legacy? You know, we don't have to end up with a book written about us. Not in the Bible, not otherwise. Whoever we are, wherever we are, we're called to give a positive legacy 
whether it's recognized only by family or friends, it will be recognized by God. Our legacy of perseverance, of unwavering faith. And even when we fall, as God restores us, may our lives so leave that legacy in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.